This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hey, everybody. It's Moscow here. And before we get started with today's show, I just wanted to remind you all that a great way to support the Brewing Network is by shopping on Amazon. Just go to thebrewingnetwork.com and click on the Amazon link and then do all your shopping as normal. You won't even know we're there, but Amazon gives us a little cut of everything you buy. And it goes a long way to helping keep the lights on around here. So many of you are already doing it, and for that we offer our sincere thanks. Keep it up, and if you're not doing it, a pox on you and everyone in your family. Thanks in advance. Enjoy the show. The Sour Hour is meant for the serious brewer. The Sour Hour may contain some seriously funkified content. The Sour Hour is not for the faint of heart. So exercise some damn discretion, would you please? Sheesh. And now, here's the Sour Hour with Jay Goodwin. Alright, it's that time. Already in progress, the Sour Hour. Uh, we're having a great episode, and we're talking to Jester King, head brewer Garrett Cole, and barrel program head Adrian Ballou. Um, we've been talking mixed fermentation, all about their award-winning uh, saisons and sours. So let's uh, hop back in on the show, already in progress. I can't believe we uh, had to wait so long to uh, hear what they're going to say next. I know. That's crazy. Here it comes. Jester King. We're back. It's the Sour Hour. We're with Jester King. Got Garrett and Adrian on the line. And we were just talking about uh, mixed culture fermentation uh, before we took our beer break. Um, and Garrett was actually on the mixed culture fermentation panel at uh, the Craft Brewers Conference this uh, past time in, uh, in Portland. Uh, how was that, Garrett, being up in front of all those people? <laughs> it was it was kind of nerve-wracking. I mean, it was great. I, I had really great company there. I mean, Chad, Jason, and Peter are all really brilliant people. So to have have them as a backup in the event that I totally floundered it was was great. Um, but it was it was a lot of fun uh, just to talk about kind of the wacky things we do in in our brewery that people or literature tells you to not do ever. Uh, that was great. Well, let's get into some of that. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, weren't who are listening weren't able to attend that. Um, what, you know, what what were your takeaways from what you heard from the other panelists, and what what did you think that you really wanted to get across during that panel about mixed culture fermentation? Um, I, honestly, I think the the main goal was to kind of emphasize that mixed culture isn't really about making like the most sour beer or even making sour beer at all. But just about like the nuances when you combine many different organisms, and I, I think I think that got across for the most part. I mean, there are still questions like how do I sour kettle sour beer, etc. But anyway, it was it was a really great time. Do you guys do kettle souring? 
We don't. Um, honestly, if we were to brew a beer as normal and hop it to five IBUs, send it to a tank and pitch our mix culture, it would be rip and sour in about two weeks. We have some really resilient lactic acid bacteria in our blend. Cool. And if, if people are interested in kind of trying out your blend, do you guys bottle are your bottles, you know, kind of harvestable? Can can home brewers yeah. take the bottom yeah. and I, use that? Absolutely. I mean, we cold crash everything before packaging to, well, almost everything to 35 Fahrenheit. But um, we repitch the exact same mixed culture we used to primary ferment at packaging. So absolutely, um, what you harvest from the bottle is what we primary ferment with. Cool. And I think when a lot of people jump into mixed culture fermentation, one thing they worry about and a lot of questions we get are, you know, how do you maintain this? Like, let's say... You know, I've got my first sour beer and it's mixed culture and it was really good. Or, you know, I'm worried already. You know, we just had a question today. You know, I've, I'm going to use this mixed culture, but I haven't used it yet. And I'm already worried about my second batch. How do you guys maintain it at Jester King to keep it maybe not consistent? Because I've heard you guys talk about kind of consistency versus just working on what's best and having a little bit of drift. But how do you keep yeah. it kind of uh, up to your standards? Well, we... It's, I mean, it's really, it's an ever evolving process. Like we're, and as such, we can't really have like a, you know, regimented process of how we pitch or how we make our beer. It's kind of just by feel like, Hey, this fermentation went great. So let's pitch, you know, a pound per barrel of yeast, et cetera. But, um, we, this time of year, like warm, we kind of like separate our fermentations into cold season and warm season. Um, so like November through March, we consider our cold season. Our, our brewery is, is more or less outside. I mean, it's a, it's like a corrugated steel, um, building, but there's no insulation. So it gets, it gets pretty cold in the winter and our, our tanks will get down to about 55 degrees Fahrenheit in the winter time. So our fermentations that time of year are much slower um, than they are, say, April through October. But April through October, we're able to like ferment a beer to dryness in two to four weeks. And whatever yeast is settled out in the bottom of a cylindrical conical, we'll, we'll harvest that yeast and pitch it into whatever wort we have coming up. And if we don't have any available, um, we'll do yeast starters in our packaging tank. We have a, a yeast brink that we maintain in-house. Really, it's, it's just a converted 50-liter keg that is kind of like, I mean, it's a keg that's been retrofitted to have a valve on the very bottom and then a, a valve and also a blow-off tube on the top. So it's kind of like a miniature fermentation vessel that we keep. It's like a very similar to a sourdough starter. We'll feed it um, in the summertime, like the warm fermentation season. We really don't feed it very much at all because we don't need yeast from it. But in the colder fermentation season for us, we'll feed it once every month or so. Um, and when necessary, we'll propagate off of that. A uh, question came through uh, from the chat room, wondering if you guys top off your barrels. We don't top off our barrels. In fact, we don't ever top off our barrels. Even during uh, cool ship season when we're doing the spontaneous beers after primary fermentation, we'll lose a little bit out of the top, but we'll just bung it at that time. And um, Our mixed culture develops a really beautiful pellicle on the top, 
Um, and we find that that protects the beer from oxygen and we pyramid stack our barrels. So once they're filled, they're in place and they don't move until they're emptied. So that pellicle forms and we just kind of like to let it be. And at that point, we just don't do anything. So it sounds like they're hard to get to, but even if you could get to them, you still wouldn't top off because you don't want to disturb the pellicle? That's correct. So Jay, you've sort of defended breaking pellicles because they reform. Mm -hmm. So we also don't top off though. You don't? Okay. But we we move our barrels around uh, quite a bit more than it sounds like Jester King does. But I mean, it will reform. Um, I think you're... There's a little bit of risk of exposure there, but as you're moving it, you're probably knocking some CO2 out of solution. Um, so that'll give you a temporary kind of blanket that's protecting you from oxygen exposure. Um, but yeah, I mean, you do run a risk of breaking the pellicle and it not reforming. But I, I've just I've I've never really seen that. I'm I'm checking in uh, on the barrels every once in a while to see just visually inside to see that the pellicles are intact. Um, and they've been looking pretty good in general. Um, but yeah, I, I think top offs are every brewer's got their, their opinion on it. Um, but it's just to each his own. I don't think there's a right or a wrong on that one. A lot of people make great beer topping off. So, right. But if Jester King and rare barrel are saying we don't, then perhaps there is a right. In, no, I mean, I think at least a little bit. No, I think there's plenty of great brewers who do top off. So, uh-huh. it, it, you know, it's just. You know, I, and there's there's great reasons too. I think you are limiting the oxygen exposure. My thing is just, is it worth the effort and the breaking of that pellicle to do it? And you know, in my opinion, for us, for our beers, it's not. But you know, maybe beers that are aged much longer, um, like three years, maybe you know, maybe you do want to top off with all the evaporation and potential exposure to oxygen. But speaking of, you know, checking in on barrels, so do you guys, we talked a little bit earlier in the show about um, autolysis. Do you guys find uh, any autolysis in, you know, your maybe longer aged beers? Or is that is that a flavor that's come up in your brewery at all? It is. We actually, um, I, there's this one specific incident or barrel, and this happened about a year ago when we were, we were racking out of uh, a set of barrels that had Boxer's Revenge. And there was one barrel in particular that had like the most beautiful characteristics that it was completely different from all of the other ones. We were really puzzled and we, we looked at that barrel and where it was on the stack. And when we started pulling from it, we realized that was the one that was at the end of the tank. It was, it was the last one that we pushed into and it had a big yeast plug go into it from the, from the, tank that it had been primary fermented in. So uh, we were like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. All of the autolyzed yeast gave it this really unique characteristic. So ever since then, that's something that we've played around with more in the barrel room, just um, kind of trying to incorporate more yeast into suspension when we rack into barrels. also racking into barrels before primary fermentation is completely done. So there is a little bit more autolyzed yeast in the barrels after time. Uh, so that is a char- that's a characteristic we do really like in our barrel-aged beers. That's really interesting. And kind of that goes to what you're talking about, Garrett, where, you know, throw, it, throw out everything you know about making beer. You guys are actually trying to introduce yeast autolysis into your sour beer, which is some of that 
you know, in normal beer making, you're trying to avoid, you know, with, with all the tools in your tool belt. Right. You guys are doing the uh, George Costanza brewing method. Just everything's the opposite. <laughs> and, things and, start, it, and it's working beautifully. Things start working out. Yeah. yeah. Right then. Fun. Speaking of kind of, uh, you know, bucking trends, I wanted to ask Garrett about a blog post that I read of his, and he may know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> you talked about using green bottles for your beers. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about, uh, you know, your thinking behind that and just explain to people uh, your love of green bottles? But is, it, is it still on the table or is it decided it just hasn't happened yet? Using green bottles? Yeah. I think they've put some of their beers into green bottles. Already have. But I'll, I'll let Garrett yeah. explain. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've put quite a, I mean, not quite a bit, but um, the, the very first run was a beer we make called Le Petit Prince, which is our like table beer. And that's, that's kind of like collectively at the brewery, it's our favorite beer that we make just because it's just, I mean, it's a crushable beer. It's really simple. Um, it's my very, favorite too. I love that. Very beer. delicate dry hop. It's got like, Sots is the dry hop. And I'm I'm really I'm really fond of like like Saison Dupont when it came in a green bottle, like having a little bit of skunk character. Like that was something that was so intriguing to me. And even like Mexican lager, like those Hecky's and things like that. Like that's a nostalgic thing for me. Like I my my folks live out on some land and I go out there sometimes and ride a four wheeler around and drink Dos Equis and a camouflage koozie. It's like that's like <laughs> heaven for me. So to I don't know, reintroduce these things that I find nostalgic or intriguing was really the main goal and not to like offend anyone or anything, just to have some have something that's different and maybe say it's okay that beer gets skunky or light struck. Like it doesn't have to be a, a bad thing. I mean, I guess like I kind of um wanted not deliberately wanted to challenge, but inadvertently challenged the like status quo of what's appropriate or inappropriate in, in the character of beer. It sure. makes perfect sense. Skunkiness can complement your beer. It yeah. you don't want it in your robust porter. Yeah, right. But really, yeah, there are really, some styles. It's all personal preference. You know, if you don't like it, there's nothing wrong with that. And if you do like it, there's also nothing wrong with that. How about sour beer? Sour is an off flavor. You know, yes, acidity totally. is an off right. flavor. And you know, that's all. That's all we're talking about now. Yeah. So, just, and it's uh, huge. Like sour beer is so popular. It's like why is why is something that ten years ago would have been like, oh my god, these guys don't know how to sanitize in their brewery. Like now it's so embraced, but like a little bit of light struck character is like, oh man, you guys, you're making terrible beer. He's ahead yeah, of the curve. Ten, ten years from now he's gonna have his own podcast about skunky beer. The skunky hour. <laughs> <Yeah. era. laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean I love that. I love taking kind of the the uptightness out of beer and just kind of talking about flavors. I mean, there's so many long held traditions and things that people embrace and say, Oh no, it's gotta be like this. It's gotta be like this. So it's like you said, Scott, you know, is this, is this a settled issue? And it's like, uh, you know, I think generally it is, but I love a brewer that will find the face of something like that because you know, this is something that they like, you know? And when you see, you know, Dre Fontaine and beers or like he mentioned, Saison Dupont, I mean, can they possibly be wrong? I'm not questioning the Dre Fontaine and guys. So. Right. They're, and I think that's what Gary was saying. There's a exactly. lot of great beers that, that have this character. So yeah. you start to associate this character in the context of a great beer instead of like, you know, maybe a mediocre beer. You know, you can per- start to perceive that as a positive complexity in a beer. So I think that's that's a really cool thing. Speaking of just stuff that not everyone does, um, when you guys were in town, I was talking with uh, Adrian about 
uh, something you guys do and we do also at the Rare Barrel, which is putting uh, fresh beer into oak barrels that have been previously used for fruit beers, but without rinsing them. Was I... Am I correct in kind of saying that you guys do do that? And what's been your experience with that, if so? Are you talking about, um, like, re-fermenting a beer with fruit and then putting it back into barrels? Is that what you were saying? Yeah, so basically taking a beer, like, like let's say Atrial, you guys uh-huh. rack out of that barrel. And am I correct in remembering that you guys would put a fresh beer back into the Atrial barrel without rinsing it? Oh, we, we did for the yeah. for the very first batch of Atrial. We did that, and that was uh, that was what became Levian Rose. Yeah, um, I'm sorry, I forgot. Which about had that. you know you know we still had spent raspberries in those barrels, but now now we do that in a stainless tank. But we also, I mean, we also do that on occasion as well, where we have you know we'll pull beer out of barrels without rinsing and then send another beer into it. But Adrian can. Yeah, um, we like as far as rinsing barrels, uh, that's something that we used to like religiously rinse barrels after emptying them every time. And uh, we decided a couple of years ago to experiment with not rinsing between uses. Uh, and we actually found that there weren't any problems with that. And we actually really liked the beer that came out after not rinsing it as well. Um, so usually we'll go a couple, we'll use a barrel a couple times without rinsing in between. Usually by the third use, maybe the fourth, we will take it down. We'll give it a really good spray out with our aqua blaster. But um, yeah, to go back to your original question, what Garrett kind of elaborated on was that I think what like we'll do our fruit reef fermentations in stainless or in fooders. We'll rack that beer off and then we'll add fresh beer on top of it. And right now we really just do this with, uh, most of our berries, like the raspberries, cherries. I think that's it actually, Mm -hmm. just because, uh, those, we get those individually quick frozen and there's just the cell walls break and there's so much fruit character released in the beer that when we rack the first beer off, we find that there's, there continues to be fruit character in the fruit. So like, Oh, let's, let's do a Saison that, that captures a little bit of this faint fruit character that's left in the tank. Oh, that's really cool. And you know, you're, you're definitely trying to squeeze every every last drop out of an ingredient that you know most people would say okay now it's time to to get rid of this so that's pretty cool that you can you know make another beer out of it that's that's really great yeah and in fact those beers are i feel like most of us that work at the brewery they're our favorites we all absolutely love Livian rose and a lot of us prefer it over atrial rubicite just because we think it it's a little bit more nuanced it has more delicate characteristics. Uh, it, I find it to be a little bit of a more interesting beer. Yeah, I'll just throw my two cents on top of that. That we do that at the Rare Barrel also, and those are some of my favorite beers too. So, if any awesome. if any brewers are out there, and you know, before you rinse out that that fruit barrel or that fruit tank, you know, try try something like this out. You know, you may you may be losing you know a second beer that you know you never thought you had. Um, I want to take uh, another break in a little bit and then hopefully bring you guys back for another segment if you have time. But uh, let's get to a, a couple of questions before then. 
Sure. Here's one from uh, Kevin Freer. Uh, he says he was at uh, Jester King back in April, and Garrett, you were very kind, showed him around. He said uh, he's uh, from Wellington Brewery in Ontario, Canada. Uh, he says uh, he was uh, blown away by the setup of your barrels. Uh, you brought up earlier the pyramid setup. So he wants you to sort of elaborate on that and the CIP pump that you use for cleaning the barrels in place. He says he thinks a lot of uh, barrel aging uh, brewers would be interested in, in hearing how you do that. Uh, and then uh, after that, too, um, maybe elaborate on how you determine what goes into which barrels, like your stainless versus your fooders, et cetera. He wants to hear your take on designing beers for each of those options. Sure. Um, it's, you know, pyramid stacking, that was really Adrian's introduction when she came onto the brewery, um, kind of given her, she'd just come back from France, and that's kind of what they do there. Um, so beforehand, we were putting all of our barrels on racks and forklifting and for lifting them around. And if we wanted to blend something and one of the barrels in the blend happened to be in the back right corner of the barrel room, it turned into a 12 hour day of pulling all of the barrels out, putting them in the hot Texas sun just to access that one barrel. Um, so it just made total sense to begin pyramid stacking. That way they're all in place. We can just walk down a row and access anything we want um, without having to forklift, huff fumes, what have you. And then we were in Switzerland in May of 2014. Is that correct? Yeah, May of 2014 at a brewery called Trois Dames. And the owner, Raphael, Raphael Mettler, uh, told us about this device where you can, you can pyramid stack barrels and then have something that's kind of like a, it's like a mobile, C, not CIP, but it's like a, a spraying unit that's got um, a bushing that fits in the bung that sprays out the barrel and then a hose that extends to the bottom that pulls a vacuum. So you're spraying it and then pulling the liquid out without ever having to remove the barrel. Um, we purchased one of those. When was that? About, a, about uh, eight last, months ago. Last winter. We actually uh, got a lot of help from Troy Casey on this. Uh, he was... One of the first brewers I know of in the States that was using this piece of equipment, and he was hugely helpful when we were trying to source one. It's a little bit of a challenging piece of equipment uh, just because, I mean, the biggest issues we have with it are if we're using a barrel that had been toasted, sometimes barrel piece, like pieces of the barrel will clog the vacuum. <laughs> But it has made it easier to rack out. Like before, when we didn't have this piece of equipment and we wanted to spray barrels out between use, we would have to play this really crazy Tetris game with the pyramid stack where it's like, okay, well, if I pull two barrels from here, then I can get that barrel under and then here and here. And this allows us to pull from wherever we want. So we'll rack barrels out into the blending tank and then we can spray them all out with this device on the pyramid stacks and then immediately fill them up. So it's been hugely helpful. Awesome. And then was there another part to that one? Or uh, yeah. yeah, for for like choice of what beer to put in barrels, recipe formulation, et cetera. Exactly. It's kind of a it's kind of a rare occurrence that we're like deliberately finding barrels for flavor. Um, we, we do on occasion though, uh, for instance, we made a beer with crooked stave and then the brewery mentioned before a where we aged the beer in sherry barrels. Um, and we also made a beer called Coquetier, uh, last year that was aged in brandy barrels, but those are kind of rare occurrences for us. Mostly what we're seeking with putting beer in barrels is just kind of a, like a home or a vessel for yeast and bacteria or like a microclimate. 
and after you know we use a barrel that has some sort of like spirit or wine or whatever character in it really it's just whatever is empty and available is what a beer that's ready to be sent to barrels goes into it's not like um oh this format is good for this with the exception being spontaneously fermented beer given the long-term aging that it could potentially have like upwards of three to five years we want larger format barrels we use punch-ins for all of that pretty much exclusively um just kind of for like the aspect of surface area to not get too much oak character um you know we're really not after the barrels being any sort of flavoring component besides kind of the rare situations that i mentioned before but rather just vessels of of perpetuation for yeast and bacteria before we ask the next question i have one of my own do you guys have bottles left of the coquetier because i was looking at that and i was like "Ooh, that's a beer that i definitely want to try send him to scott moscowitz no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> we may have a bottle or two sitting around somewhere all right I just want to also point out that uh, Kevin ended his email with a P.S. Jester King is uh, the most beautiful brewery I have ever seen. The land is so pretty. I'm envious. All I see looking out our windows is a car dealership. So count your blessings. <laughs> That's so kind of him. He must have not been here in August then. <laughs> it's hot, huh? It's hot yeah, here. Yeah, it gets very warm. All right. Well, we'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Your brewing water can be a mystery. If it's good enough to drink, it's good enough to brew with, right? We all know to perfect certain styles of beer, proper water chemistry is vital. But running water tests can be complicated and expensive, but not anymore. Industrial Test Systems is proud to introduce the new Smart Brew Water Testing Kits, incorporating the exact iDip Smart Photometer System. The only photometer on the market that harnesses the power of the smartphone and runs water tests without you doing a pile of calculations. The iDip features two-way Bluetooth communication with the brain of the system, which is its own multilingual app. This allows limitless possibilities, including lab accuracy, free upgrades, test customization, over 35 available, mobile sharing, and more. You can keep a detailed history of your results. Email your water report to other brewers or share it on social media. Visit smartbrewkit.com now and learn more about the iDip photometer and all the tests it can do for you. Time Ninkasi Award winner and Grandmaster Judge Gordon Strong invites you on a guided journey of what's new in the world of homebrewing. Modern homebrew recipes, exploring styles and contemporary techniques available now from Brewers Publications. Gordon brings you specific advice and sensory profiles for as-brewed award-winning beers with delicious variations to get your creative juices flowing. This is more than just a book of recipes. It sets brewers on the path to discovering what's new in the world of homebrewing. AHA director Gary Glass says, if you want to enter competitions or just learn more about styles that you might not have experience with, this book is going to help you tremendously. By emulating what Gordon does, you're going to make better beer. Modern homebrew recipes, exploring styles and contemporary techniques by Gordon Strong. Available right now from BrewersPublications.com and find brewing retailers near you. Nico, listen, our lawyers said that we had to do this for one hour, and after this, we don't have to talk to each other for three more months until the next meeting. Kids. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm supposed to have more lines. I'm the professional. 
Hey, it's Sully. And I'm Nico. And we opened the 21st Amendment 10 years ago at 563 2nd Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giants Park, to make great beer and have a great time doing it. That's right, because to us, the 21st Amendment is more than just the right to make beer. It's the right to experiment, to be innovative, and just do things differently. And so now, we're putting our craft beer in cans. That's right, cans. You can find our world-famous Hell or High Watermelon Wheat Beer at Brew Free or Die IPA in the Northeast, Northwest, parts of the Midwest, and Alaska in cans and on draft. So next time you're at your local neighborhood pub or good beer store, be sure to ask for 21st Amendment in cans. Because everyone likes it in a can. Tasty Crack Cans. Tasty Crack Cans. Hey, this is Vinny at Russian River Brewing Company. I'm getting funky on the Sour Hour on the Brewing Network. Oh, that's a funny one. <laughs> I like that. One take Vinny. That's what they call one, it. One take Vinny. Um, we're back. It's the Sour Hour. We're here with Jester King. We've got Garrett and Adrian who've been kind enough to stick with us uh, for many segments on this show. But there's been such interest in uh, them coming on that I'm glad they could stick around. Um before going too much further, I wanted to touch on just the distribution of Jester King beers. Where you know, a lot of people listening, I'm sure, have heard of Jester King. Maybe some who have gotten a lot more interested listening to you guys. Where where can they get your beer? Well, um, we sell. I'm not sure the exact number, but I would estimate 85 percent or so at our brewery of what we make. Um, you know, with the remaining going kind of around Austin. And every now and then, getting, getting outside of Austin, um, if, you know, if we're doing an event, say, in um, South Carolina or California or wherever, like a beer festival, we'll send a little bit of beer to kind of spread around those towns or those states following that event. But really, we're not really aiming. I mean, we make a very small amount of beer. I think last year we brewed or we sold rather about 1,800 barrels. And this year we're kind of on track to about 2,300 or so. So we're not making that much beer um, and really selling most of it at the brewery. So if you want to get kind of the special releases, the brewery is the place to go. Um, otherwise, places around Austin, mostly like key restaurants and and bottle shops or trading for it. Awesome. And it sounds like, you know, your, your brewery is at a, at a beautiful place. I've seen... Uh, you know, your tasting room menu and you guys do, uh, quite a lot of guest beer and some pretty awesome guest beer. That might, and so it, it seems like you're really making it worth it for people who, who make the trip out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we really kind of want to emphasize like, you know, our surroundings and our beer, like our, our environment, like where the breweries, where the breweries located is really influential on, on our beer. And as such, I feel it's a very great reference point to, to like have the beer there at the brewery, I think it really reflects the character. And, yeah. and uh, Ron, one of the owners, he used to work for the Shelton Brothers, and he he does a really great job of curating our guest beer list. And I that's that's a big passion of his, I think. And um, and our brewery is really focused on helping bring some really great beers into Texas, and that's something we're really trying to do right now. 
Awesome. From the list, it looks like you're doing a great job. Um, for people who do want to come out and visit you, what's what's the best time of year to come visit Austin? Um, October through May, I would say. I mean, it's the most. I mean, we have like you know we have beer year round, but that's the most comfortable. Um, it just gets so hot out out at the brewery this time of year. Um, but if I mean if you're an Austinite or if you're a Texan, you're probably used to the heat. Um, but yeah, definitely fall through spring. I don't. I, I don't ever. Get, I never get used to heat. I grew up in Southern California. Yeah. I, I never. And now I live here in Concord. It's hot. Never got used to it. Never. It's like people go, "Oh yeah, I wake up at five thirty a.m. for my job. I, I get used to it." <laughs> I never do. I never did. Yeah. Same here. I mean, I grew up. I've I've lived in Texas all my life. I mean, I did a short stint in California and then in Florida. But um, yeah, I'm not used to it, and I grew up with it. Yeah. <laughs> you never. You hot. never will be. It's a long yeah. life of sweating. Yeah. There's no getting around it. Nope. So. All right, here's a question from uh, Matt Piska, who hopefully is a little cooler. He's out in the U.K. Uh, he writes in, uh, he asked about capturing wild yeast, but we, we already kind of touched on that. He goes on to say uh, he's having trouble with uh, his own sour beers at home. He says they're ending up way too sour or they stink of acetone. He's pretty much dumping everything. Um, so he's kind of wondering about pitching rates for different souring bacteria. He's wondering if you're calculating uh, in the same way you would for regular brewing yeast or if there are, are rules of thumb he should stick to. Um, not going down the route of premixed farmhouse blends like uh, White Labs or Y Yeast. Yeah, um, you know it's hard to say because I'm really not sure what cult, if he's you know capturing wild yeast, indigenous yeast, what have you. Like I really have no idea what they're doing or what they're capable of. For reference, though, um, we were doing cell counts on our mixed culture um, where we were you know counting under a microscope with a hematometer and counting everything, yeast and bacteria, everything we could see, you know, in that grid, um, and we were finding that it it was within a range like a 10 pound deviation plus or minus of being about a pound per barrel uh, pitching rate. And that's kind of what we more or less like in the past six months have done away with cell counts and have just begun pitching a pound per barrel. Um, you know, if, uh, if the beer that the yeast comes from is, was kind of lagging, we'll pitch a little more yeast or if it was really great, we'll pitch a little, a little less, but, um, that's kind of a difficult question to answer just given the nature of like there's a lot of different yeast and bacteria out there and it's hard to know what is capable of doing what. Yeah, I'll just piggyback on top of that saying at the rare barrel, I'll, we do a lot of primary without Saccharomyces and when we try to repitch that culture, for example, from like a tank to another tank, we really try and get as much as possible and – it's it's almost like a natural limit. There's there's only so much that flocks to the bottom of a tank, and it's kind of a self-limiting thing. You got to be careful because the less yeast you pitch, repitch into a new batch, the more the bacteria is going to take over. So it's it's why you really want to monitor things. But I I like I kind of like when bacteria bacteria takes over more because it's it's always easier to just brew a batch of clean beer to blend it down than to try and, you know, brew a whole new acid beer unless you have that strong culture around. So just something to keep an eye on and adjust, but, um, it, you know, there's no, there's no exact thing, no exact way to go about it. And I'd also just add that the off flavors that you're talking about getting, I don't think they're related to pitch rate. So, um, just make sure you're, uh, really, you know, cleaning out your vessels well, limiting the exposure to oxygen, which is really hard to do on a homebrew scale. We've talked about that a lot on this show. 
you know, if you have, I, I'd recommend using glass carboys and filling to the very top, um, and just making sure your enclosure is, is a good one, but not, not good enough where, you know, you're going to bung up a, a big fermentation and then have a, an exploding glass carboy. Do you guys do uh, clean beers there? At Gesture King? Yeah. No. You don't? No. Okay. I mean, we, we, we hop beers to a rate that we'd like to think. That, I mean, for a, for a time period, they're perceivably clean. But uh, no, nothing, I mean, the, mix, the same mixed culture is in everything we do except for the spontaneous stuff. What advice would you give guys? So, for example, here's a question from Frederick Billingsworth writing on that topic. Um, I love the show. He said, I've been running a small brewery uh, for about five years. So he's a guy's a a pro brewer. He said, I think our customers would like us to push the limit a little bit. I can't barrel age. I don't have the room. uh, And I'm also just kind of worried about it. Uh, But I could maybe add some equipment to do some Brett fermentation. So he's wondering how to keep the Brett out of his clean beers. Should, Should he dedicate tanks? Do you think he should ferment in the same cellar room? Um, you know, we, we did clean and, you know, quote unquote wild beers in the same facility for several years with, with absolutely no issues, um, just by isolating equipment. Um, we would use the same like stainless tanks, but we would always switch gaskets and product hoses and valves, et cetera. Anything that had something other than metal on it, if it had like a rubber gasket or anything plastic, that equipment would, all, would always be dedicated to wild beer and we'd have clean equipment, et cetera, with no issues whatsoever. That being said, I like, I've read a lot of papers, especially on the topic of, of Brett and different bacteria that form really intense biofilms on stainless. So I, I would be more cautious about doing non-saccharomyces like brett or lacto fermentation within the same cellar but like garrett said we we didn't really have issues so we didn't have issues but we only did that for a short period of time and i think it was only a matter of time until it became an issue yeah um i think now i mean it was deliberate the choice to do entirely mixed culture fermentation it wasn't like oh great now everything's infected now it was it was entirely deliberate but i think and this is entirely my opinion that it's kind of necessary to like have areas of focus and not try to cover like the entire spectrum or gamut of, of, of styles or fermentation profiles. I think when you begin to focus on certain things, that's when you get really good at them and that's when you can really showcase them and have something very unique. Um, but that's just my opinion. I'm just one dude (laughs) running one of the best breweries on the planet. Just, just one guy, one dude making some great beer. Um, one, one thing that, I want to ask this this one dude and Adrian also. I want to get your your answer separately, uh, and it's my favorite question to ask. What's what do you guys think is the biggest mistake in sour beer making? Yeah, I I would say, uh, and I know Gert kind of mentioned this earlier, but the focus on making beer sour. I think even at Jester King, we try to shy away from using the word sour these days. Uh, like we're trying to make balanced beers. We're not trying to make sour beer. Uh, we like a little bit of acidity, like a tart character in our beers. But yeah, I think I think that there's just been too much of a focus on on acid and peat, like really low pH and. 
Uh, I think that there needs to be more of a focus on making something that's balanced. Okay. Vera? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I mean, honestly, I kind of find it similar to like what we were, you know, with the beer industry kind of experience with IPA, you know, in the last five, 10 years where there is this, this time where like everybody was claiming like, oh, my beer's 102 IBUs. No, mine's 190 IBUs. And there was like this, this, this race to make like the most bitter thing. Um, and I feel like it kind of distracted from creating something that was like pleasant and enjoyable and drinkable, quaffable. And it was just kind of like this, like, you know, flexing contest. And I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's going to kind of be a similar thing with like beers that have lactic acidity or even acetic acidity, they'll become, you you look at IPAs now, like IPAs now are like the current trend is like a dry, not very bitter, but very highly aromatic beer. And I think that's going to kind of be the trend with like sour or mixed culture fermentation or lactic fermentation, what have you beers is that it's kind of like a more integrated and, and nuanced thing, which is great. It's, I mean, that's kind of only natural. Um, but if people like really sour things, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know, to each their own. Yeah, there's definitely a place for that too. But I couldn't yep. agree more. It, we to, to the point where we've been messing around with an idea for the last uh, couple of years at the Rare Barrel, thinking about doing like an April Fool's Day thing, where we we announced that we're rolling out um, a new piece of equipment that will be able to analyze your beer for international souring units. <laughs> and yeah. all all we'll be doing is just uh, hey everyone you know send us your sour beers and then we'll just drink them right and then yeah. kind of arbitrarily assign a number to it and then report the results back i was this like man yeah we're just gonna get a bunch of free sour beer and then yeah don't like, do it on april fools just, just do it for real yeah yeah but yeah you, you know there there's a place for you know 99 international souring unit beers but i think yeah people's taste will settle settle in the the 30 to 40 range. And if you're wondering if your beers are there, just send me some and I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Totally. All, right. All right. Yeah. Here's a, here's one final question for you guys. And then we'll let you go uh, sweat. This is from uh, Jonathan Duncan. How do you measure alcohol content in beers that have fruit added to it during secondary? He said he's been brewing some uh, great tasting sours, but he has no way of gauging the ABV in the beers he adds fruit to. We're, we're not a real scientific brewery. Um, <laughs> We send them off to a lab and they tell us. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can sort of get an idea by, you can usually look up uh, average bricks for different fruits. And from that, you can sort of get an idea of maybe like the percentage raised in alcohol. I'm sure you can do a lot of math to kind of figure that out but yeah just looking at the average bricks number that you can usually find off of find off the internet it, it helps or you can send it to the rare barrel where jay and i will <laughs> yeah, will drink it and then just assign you a number yeah we do that too but yeah at, like at the system yeah, at the rare barrel we, we we usually see about a half to a full percentage point pickup for our it's about 40 pounds of puree per oak barrel and that's the range we're seeing. Um, you notice some fruit picking up more than others. Uh, yeah, definitely. There's it's the like uh, there. Adrian was saying there's a, an initial sugar content you want to pay attention to. Oh, okay. And luckily from our supplier, we get we get all those um, reports for each batch. Um, so that's really helpful. But 
I don't, I don't know if this is a home brewer or a pro brewer. It's kind of like he's a home brewer. If you're a pro brewer, you send it out for testing. If you're a home brewer, don't worry about it. Right. And that's the awesome part of being a home brewer. Just right? guess. Yeah. He, yeah. I mean, to give him an idea, I think with stone fruits, kind of like what Jay said, maybe half to one percentage increase, but we've used grapes a few times, wine grapes, and it was like a 3% increase. Three, even, even 4%. Four, three to yeah. four. So it just depends on the fruit and the sugar content. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for all the good questions. All those questions uh, were brought to you by uh, our friend, Dr. Lambic and his sour beer blog. Awesome. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks to all the listeners for all those questions. And, uh, Jester King, we've kept you guys way too late, Texas time, but thanks so much for uh, hanging in there. Hopefully it's been a, a good time, and thanks for helping out all the listeners, uh, kind of learning how you guys do your thing uh, Austin style. Yeah, and make more atrial, for the love of God, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, thank been you a guys. Fun. All right, we'll have no to have you guys back uh, real soon, and uh, I guess see you in, in two months in Denver, yeah? Yes. Yeah. We'll be we'll there. there. Awesome. Cheers, right. guys. Thanks, guys. Let's take a beer break. We'll be right back on the Sour Hour. Are you a member of the American Homebrewers Association? Well, you should be. Members of the AHA can focus on brewing beer, and the AHA takes care of the rest. The American Homebrewers Association advocates on behalf of homebrewers like you to legalize the hobby in all 50 states and make sure that beer laws make sense. Plus, there are many great benefits that come with your AHA membership, like pub discounts that give you awesome deals at bars, restaurants, breweries, and more, Zymergy Magazine, and eZymergy. For tons of articles, how-tos, easy-to-follow recipes, and news about the hobby you love. And access to the members-only content on homebrewersassociation.org. But the AHA can't do it without your support. Join today so the American Homebrewers Association can keep fighting for your homebrewing rights. Visit homebrewersassociation.org or join right now from the homepage of the Brewing Network website. Relax. Don't worry. It's the American Homebrewers Association. When I order a beer, I want my server to know more about it than I do. I want someone who enjoys good beer and loves helping others enjoy it, too. I want someone who knows how to pour a perfect pint for every beer style. I want a Cicerone. The Cicerone Certification Program is creating the type of people who help you enjoy great beer. Home brewers and craft beer lovers know beer is more flavorful and complex than ever, and it takes some serious knowledge to store and serve beer right. Cicerones know beer. There are three levels in the Cicerone Program. Certified Beer Server, Certified Cicerone, and Master Cicerone. Cicerones are truly the sommeliers of beer. The best beer locations have a certified Cicerone on staff. Relaxed and unpretentious. Cicerone are tested on storing and serving beer, beer styles, flavor and tasting, the brewing process and ingredients, and pairing food with beer. Learn more about your next beer guide at Cicerone.org. Certified Cicerone, because it takes top talent to present a perfect pint. Sour hours. <laughs> this or what did Bebo say? The sour life. Sour life. Sour weekend. <laughs> um, a lot of good info from Jester King. Really appreciative of those guys coming on. They're really just one of the best breweries in the world. Incredible and stuff. The fact that they're only doing around two thousand barrels a year—that's 
their impact is like so much wider than that. Yeah. And they're really just in Austin, which, you know, I think it's hard for beer to get into Texas, get out of Texas. They're working a lot on those distribution laws. Um, but the, the impact they've made is just, it's crazy. Yeah. Places like uh, Rare Barrel and Jester King, you're setting the bar so ridiculously high because every beer, there's just not even any mediocre ones. Every beer is a freaking home run. So you're saying and we should start sprinkling in some bad you, ones. I mean, you got to. You got to keep sense. expectations realistic. Yeah. So otherwise, now you've just, how are you going to top yourself? You're like Wayne Gretzky in the 80s. Like, oh, well, this is the best year ever. How's it going to get better? But then somehow he does. And you're like, how can this, how can you keep it up? Uh, you just keep going. And then one day you have a very attractive daughter, basically. <laughs> yes. yeah. Paulina. She's super I, don't know. I don't know. That's maybe too niche of a Wayne Gretzky joke. Is it? I don't know. Google Paulina Gretzky, everyone, and you'd see how uh, niche it is. Yeah. Okay, so here are a couple more questions before we wrap it up. Mm-hmm. This is from Ben Thomas. He said, so I brewed a, a Berliner with strawberries. We've talked about strawberries being kind of a problematic adjunct. Yeah. He said he uh, uh, bought frozen, thought out, pitched eight pounds for about three and three-quarter gallons. After carbonation, when he swirled it up, he got a huge acetone smell. Uh, he bought a commercial strawberry Berliner and got the same acetone smell. Any uh, thoughts on the chemistry going on there? Uh, I don't have many thoughts on the chemistry, but yeah, as Scott mentioned, I think there's a lot of problems with strawberry beers. I haven't figured it out. The, the strawberry beer that me, that we made at the Rare Barrel, I thought was pretty good, and I didn't get any off flavors like that. We use a puree from Oregon Fruit Products. Um, I think what really helped our beer was that the base beer was our red base, and that beer has a, like a strong cherry component to it. So if you just had the red beer on its own, in fact, we we just released a beer that um, kind of reflects this. It's called Another World, but it's it's got this strong cherry flavor to it. And when we put strawberries on top of that, which are you know not the strongest, most flavor impactful uh, fruit around, I think those two combined really really helped it out. So. You know, maybe if we had started with a blonde base and then tried to really ramp up on the strawberry, maybe that's where people run into problems. But um, if it truly is acetone, I'm not sure if that's... I mean, I, I've heard people complain about like a like a Band-Aid flavor, off-flavor in strawberry beers, now this acetone. So, I, you know, I'm not sure if it's one thing in particular, but usually the acetone comes from acetic acid, alcohol, and oxygen being at the same party for way too long. So you can keep oxygen out of there and through fermentation manipulation, kind of just try to keep acetic acid low. Then you probably shouldn't be getting a lot of acetone, but it could, it could be the acetone. It could be another off flavor coming from the strawberries. So I don't know, maybe just no more strawberry sour beer. Exactly. With as many great, dip them in chocolate, eat them straight up, a little whipped Mm -hmm. cream, sprinkle them on a Belgian waffle. I mean, you do a million great things with strawberries, and making sour beer maybe just isn't one of them. And there's a million great ways. I mean, there's raspberries and apricots, and there's just so many things that work uh, so much better. Yeah, I was just talking about we made a new uh, beer with, actually, it's got raspberries, strawberries, and blackberries that's going to be on draft at the Rare Barrel this weekend. Mm. And... um, I, you know, the, I think to me, the raspberry kind of comes comes through the most. And I'm just like, man, can't we just make every beer with raspberry? Why not? It's just like it can't lose situation. So Bevo was wondering uh, who licked a Band-Aid and determined that that was an off flavor in beer. I think yeah, it's, it's, it's more the smell, like isn't it? It's like the Band-Aid smell more than more than flavor. But what about like mouse taint? 
Because <laughs> exactly. that's an off-flavor. That's who's, who's got a tongue that tiny? <laughs> N- Nicole Ernie, I think, right? Or who, who has that much free time? <laughs> Nicole Ernie. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know. All right. Let's 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 do uh, one more. And this one's kind of um, uh, detailed. And we'll, we'll kind of maybe help him walk through his recipe. This is from Spencer Gravel. He said, uh, hey, guys, I'm thinking about diving into my first sour. Wanted your opinion on the recipe, the mash techniques, and the bottle dregs I'm thinking of pitching. Um, sour blonde with apricots recipe. It was from uh, Zymer G Magazine from a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. So he's thinking 45% domestic two-row, 20% uh, unmalted flaked wheat, 20% white wheat, 15% Vienna, and uh, three IBUs of Saz. He let's, the, uh, let's stop there for a second. Yeah. That's a lot of wheat, almost the same as the base malt. So... Oh, our, our recipes are kind of well-known. If you search for them on the Internet, you can find them. We we try to stick to about 33% adjunct um, or less. And I, I switched it up from just wheat to uh, wheat, oats, spelt, and then aromatic malt, which I think he said Vienna, right? Yep. So that's kind of a good replacement for that. Um, uh, so it, it, that seems a little bit high. You may have some problems with the mash, but otherwise it's it's fine. So what, what will too much wheat give you? What, did you try that and you were getting something unpleasant? I don't like the flavor, but that might be a personal thing. It was kind of just like a little dirty. Um, all, like all that protein and wheat flavor to me, just, I don't know, it wasn't as clean and clear of a expression of flavor. Um, but then, you, yeah, you just might also have some laudering problems when you're uh, making the beer. So you may want to reduce it a little bit. A traditional lambic will have uh, 60% base mall, 40% uh, unmalted wheat. So it's not like unprecedented or anything, but you're doing your first sour beer. Maybe just ease in on that. All right, moving along. He says, uh, the article says to mash for 15 minutes at 160 uh, to keep a lot of unfermentables and starches in the wort. Does the red barrel do that? Sometimes it depends. We'll we'll do a high mash temp if we're going to do a Saccharomyces primary fermentation. So mash temp is directly related to what you're going to do for a fermentation program. You're going to start with Saccharomyces, and you're basically going to lock in some sugars that aren't going to get a, get fermented in primary. Go ahead and do the high mash temp. But if you're using a mixed culture or you're putting in bread and bacteria in a primary sense, then it, it's been my theory that you know what's what's the purpose of making it harder for them to access those sugars, so we, we do a lower mash temp. All right, he says 60-minute boil, and he's thinking of fermenting with 001, since he has it on hand, racking to secondary and pitching dregs of supplication, consecration, and sanctification. The article says it should take uh, 8 to 12 months to reach the proper acidity with WLP 655. Would the dregs get the job done quicker or slower? Um. Well, first off, just linking back to that mash temp thing, if he is going to do O one in the primary, then yeah, that 160 mash temp is fine. Um, the dregs, Russian River's beers are like like ours, are bottle condition with wine yeast, except for, I think it's beatification. I don't think he listed that. Uh, he didn't, nope. I think beatification is the only one that's bottle conditioned with Brett. So you're going to be introducing wine yeast uh, into your secondary, and that could be what's taking over your dregs. So that just, I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying that's something to look out for. And you'll want to prop up those dregs and make sure that whatever wort you're using to prop up, the dregs actually turn it into a good beer before you even embark on this whole situation. We've been, we've been hitting that hard on this show. And it's been, that's been one of the coolest things that people, you know, write in or call in about. And they said, Hey, you know, took your advice and really, you know, just, Added wort to the dregs, decanted it off. Added more wort, decanted it off. And I did that for a few months, and then it got really strong and sour. And then I added it to a beer, and it was good. And to hear people doing that is is really rewarding. And especially if this is your first one, 
that's that's what I would do. So um, Michael uh, Tonsmeyer, you know, on his blog, Mad Fermentationist, has a list of uh, dregs you can harvest out of commercial bottles. And we just heard tonight that Jester King's on that list. I know they're hard to get, um, but maybe some other ones you might be able to get, like Jolly Pumpkin. I know a lot of people have a lot of success with. So I'm not trying to tell you not to do the Russian River ones because they've got a lot of great bugs in there. But just know that there's the wine yeast in there to deal with as well. So now you're you're saying use the dregs in addition to or instead of like Rosalaire or 655. I like the dregs better than and so instead of than the mixes, but you can do both. I mean, you can do both. Why don't you do you know uh, get like a a quart mason jar or two, put some wort, can some wort in them, or just when you brew, put some wort in there. Uh, add Rosalaire into one, and then all your dregs into the other. And then when it comes time where your O one beer is done, and you want to pitch one of them in there. Just pick the best of the two, or maybe if both are good, just throw both of them in there, and then you're off and running. But I like I like to start the dregs or the yeast you order from the lab way, way in advance of when you're trying to brew that beer, because just make sure that that culture is really kicking. You may even brew like kind of the equivalent of three mini batches where you're just dumping off the beer um, for it to get up to snuff. All right, and just uh, finally, he says after it reaches the proper sourness, uh, he'd add one and a quarter uh, gallon of apricot or, or other fruit puree for the last two months. Do you think that's enough fruit? One and a quarter gallon for what's how? What's the batch size again? Oh, I'm sorry, I read it wrong. One and a quarter pound per gallon. Uh, one and a quarter pound per gallon. So we're doing three quarters of a pound per gallon. Of so that's puree. that's even more than you're using. Mm-hmm. So he's going to get. Do you think you should back it off or just go for the big fruit punch? You could back it off a little bit. I mean, one thing, you're going to add that puree, and this is this is an issue that comes up with homebrewers. It's use the puree or use whole fruit. Homebrewers sometimes will want to use the whole fruit because it's easier to get more of the liquid out if you're using whole fruit. So, you know, imagine you're doing the puree. You have to rack off of the top of where the puree settles out. So you may actually get more of the beer out, which is always a big uh, a big concern for homebrewers. You know, what are you actually going to yield after all this work if you use whole fruit? Um, but yeah, I mean, you it, that keeping that in mind, you you could back off the apricot a little bit, or you know, you could. I know there it's not like you guys have unlimited equipment, but if you did have two glass carboys instead of one, split it off to where you know you're doing double apricot in one and single apricot dose in the other, and then see which one you like better. Cool. Well, that's Spencer from San Jose. He says he loves the show and the rare barrel. So, Spencer, let us know how it turns out. Yeah, send us some some beer in uh, 12 months or however long it's going to take. Um, yeah, I guess. Is that all the questions? Yeah, uh, there's more, but we'll, we'll save them for, uh, uh, for another day. Same for uh, the next show. Um, speaking of shows... Go back and listen to, although it's not it's not posted on iTunes yet, I don't think, but the session this week was with our good friend, Cellar Maker Brewing Company, and I tried to ask Scott, I, I started listening to it today, and tried to ask Scott, you know, how that was going, and he's like, yeah, I just, you just got to listen to it. I didn't want to, I didn't want to uh, give anything away, because it had a, a, an interesting ending, that okay. show. So that's, that's what we call a tease, pro tip, and uh, yeah, go ahead, listen to the session. There's been a lot of great sessions lately. Listen to the other shows on the BN and, you know, support them because 
Sometimes they talk about sour beer. I guess that's the best thing I can say about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we don't always live up to Jay's standards in the sour beer department, but we try to expand the gamut of beer topics on the session and Brewing with Style and Brew Strong and Dr. Homebrew and uh, the many other offerings on the Brewing Network Airwaves. So whether you like uh, comedy or beer or both, you can find something that you like. Sometimes I crash the shows. You know, yeah, sometimes Jay just shows up. Who were you here? Oh, um, Noble was last Noble time. Ailworks. Noble Aleworks. Yes. Oh, whoa. That was, there was a tone for that. <clears throat> no, actually, my voice just cracked. <laughs> you were giving me a hard time for my great dad jokes. You had several dad jokes. Yeah. I, I practice my dad jokes all the time on my girlfriend, and she she loves it. What's a dad joke? <laughs> Is it like your dad instead of your mom? No, no. It's no, like, it's like terrible jokes that your dad would make. Oh, I yeah, see. just like really corny, awful jokes. But that's that's why they're funny. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. Th- there's a lot of depth to it. I judged you. I just want <laughs> I just want to make that clear. <laughs> oh, I'm fine with that. Okay, great. All right. So go check out those shows, and uh, yeah, especially the Cellar Maker one from this week. They're making great beer, and go out and visit Cellar Maker when you're out in the Bay Area. Just don't even come to the Rare Barrel. I mean, you heard enough about that, you know. <laughs> And the beer's so easy to find anyway, so why it's, waste your time? It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Um, yeah, good show. Um, we're going to return next week for our Q&A show, like we mentioned before. Uh, come find us at Ales for ALS at Faction on Saturday, August 8th. A lot of great breweries. Um, actually, I actually just saw the poster in uh, in the Hop Grenade, and there's, like, Society's going to... Actually, the two shows I was on, Society, Noble, it's it's a crazy list. Go it's to a sick lineup. Alesforals.com to check it out, get all the details, and it'll be easy to get there and back. Um, hopefully, we'll see you out there, and hopefully, we'll see you on uh, next week's show for Q&A. Be sure to send some questions in to Scott before then, Scott at thebrewingnetwork.com, and join us for the show live thebrewingnetwork.com slash TV. Uh, Thanks for joining us tonight, and we'll see you next time on the Sour Hour. Thank you, Jester King.